Hello, listener. Yes, you. Hi, listening for free. How are you? <laughs> are you listening to this podcast? Are you enjoying this podcast? Have you listened to every single episode in our two seasons yet? If not, you might want to go back and check out our archives. And if you love it, um, would you be so kind as to write us a quick review? Because my mum is running out of words to say. It really does help us, the podcast, and therefore the world. Forever grateful, yours truly. Just out here saving the world by ourselves without any superheroes like Spider-Man actually existing, just human beings. Okay, bye. <laughs> Hi, I'm Luisa Matinga. And I'm Gail Galley. And this is An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World, the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world but doesn't know where to start. We are on a mission to get everyone on board to achieve the global goals. Now, there are 17 goals that the world promised to deliver by 2030. And although we are nearly halfway to the deadline, we are not halfway to achieving them. Mm, so let's get to work on ending poverty, protecting our forests and providing clean energy for everyone. You know, the big stuff. All the stuff. In this episode, we ask two official SDG ambassadors if countries, businesses and individuals have started to work together. And as the goals are now halfway through to 2030, we ask them about their hopes for the second half. Dr. Allah Murabit helped shape the global goals and says that if we want to achieve them, we have to change who is sitting around the table. We don't appreciate the inherent power that people from different communities have, that indigenous communities have. So it was even changing the framing in my own mind to appreciate that incredible amount of power. And the ridiculously charming Richard Curtis, director and writer of many of the world's favorite films, but also a passionate campaigner for the global goals. The times are changing, and what we as members of the public need to do is nudge, 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 ask, 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 get people to move quickly. Hi, Gail. Morning, Louisa. How are you? I am good. My marriage is surviving. How are you? I'm so glad to hear that because we are talking about partnerships in today's episode. How are your general partnerships? And I'm glad to hear your wife is fine. <laughs> she is great. Uh, we are great. Our partnership is fantastic. I think I've been through enough partners in the past that have taught me how to uh, actually survive these things long term. And I'm talking all kinds of partners because uh, yeah, we take that word for granted. We only think of uh, dating, but it's like you're constantly doing things with other people, aren't you? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tosie, what's the worst you've ever had? The worst I've ever had. It was this guy I worked with uh, who was just the epitome of negativity, just like from dusk till dawn. Neg- oh, just He would the open the door with an ugh, ugh, Lisa, <laughs> ugh, traffic, ugh. Like literally, like that was my morning sound effect with door open, ugh. And that was my life for an entire year. How do you make adverts with that, uh, like in that atmosphere? Because surely adverts are all about the art of the possible and it's being sort of positive about yeah. things. How do you get, you know, to sell anything? I think I, I had actually brainstormed a lot of stuff by myself and I would just give him the ideas I've already worked on oh, okay. rather than work through ideas. Just ignore the, uh. which is harder because you're on your own now. You know, you, you're not, you're not, you don't have a partner at that point, but that's what I would do. And it was, it's like, I've learned so much from the, improv people who are like, and yes, people. That's what you really need. Somebody who will add on to your idea because you'll always find negative stuff. I mean, like in problem solving, that's what we're, we're in it. We're already in the ugh. We're trying to unugh ourselves right There's now. No, exactly. You know? I, can't, I can't stand it. We, we had a whole training program at the BBC to de-ugh ourselves. 
otherwise known as cynicism. You know, that awful feeling. At the BBC, it's, it's full of thousands of people who will kill stuff off. Mm-hmm. You know, so it doesn't matter. Hey, I've got a great idea. No, that's not going to work because. Yeah. You know, oh, no, we did that. But you can't stand it. Or even worse, the phrase was bystanders. So people who don't even give you any feedback, but they're sitting at the sort of back muttering. Oh, I've watched those guys game because what I've noticed is those people aren't trying to find the solution. Those people are trying to talk enough to sound like they're part of what's happening. But what they want to do is do nothing. Because if you actually look at the breadcrumb trail of what they've done in the past, what they've actually done is nothing. Yeah, much easier to bystand than just get, like talk everything down. But what have you actually achieved.com? Nothing. It doesn't yeah. get you anywhere, you know. And I, one of the things that makes me so thrilled about the work I get to do in Project Everyone with one of our guests today, Richard Curtis, is the crazy optimism that the man generates and the sort of can-do attitude because that is what these goals need. You know, these goals are not going to achieve themselves. The partnership goal is a sort of soft one in a way at the end because it's about a how rather than a state of achievement. But that how is so important because we're not going to be able to take the risks. We're not going to be able to trust and we're not going to be able to, you know, really forge new partnerships and innovations if we don't learn how to be really great partners. So I'm, I'm really happy that we have gotten here and this is the last one we're going to talk about because it's not natural, but we have two great people, I think, to talk to about this topic. Really also had a great time having a conversation with Ala Murabit, who is honestly just the most qualified person. Anyway, I'm excited. Let's just say I'm flipping excited. I want to start this episode. Let us get into partnerships, shall we? Let's get into it. Let's introduce her correctly. Dr. Ala Murabit is currently the Director of Global Programs, Advocacy and Communications at the Gates Foundation, no less. She is a global expert in health, in sustainable development, in inclusive security and girls' education. In fact, she is just all around ridiculously qualified and lovely. Let's hear what she has to say. So, Alatmu Barrett, welcome to the podcast, An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World. We could not be more delighted to have you because you are no idiot. I, I like the sentence, you are no idiot. That's a good starting point, I think, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, I was just going through your bio and everything, and um, I was like, this person has done so much. There's this obviously a 50, 60-year-old woman who has <laughs> achieved quite a bit and refuses to remove her photos from 20 years ago off the internet, which is fine. You know, we all, there were no filters. A woman's prerogative. (laughs) What was it that got you started way back in the beginning that kicked your spark, as it were? Women. Women did. I was in my final year of medical school and women during the Libyan revolution were really, like we often look at conflict and we look at who's holding the guns and we very rarely look at who's holding communities together. And that was women. And it was frustrating for me when the conversation started turning political, not as humanitarian, where the women were completely shut out of those rooms, despite all the contributions that they had made. And that that was really kind of the instigating point. Part of it all kind of stems from this idea of people telling us like, okay, we'll talk about women's rights after we talk about security. And I was like, you can't, you can't separate the two. When women are included in peace processes, security is 35 times more likely to last 15 years. That's a huge difference, given that most peace processes, 90% fail within five years. So for me, it was kind of just, I like the numbers. I like seeing the data. And just seeing the numbers, I was like, this makes sense. So my plan originally was to go out to start an organization, The Voice of Libyan Women, to serve as a vehicle to get my message out. And I was like, when I explain this to people, they're just going to get it. I'll be doing this for two years, and then I'll go back to medicine full time. As you know, um, (laughs) turns out people, you know, even if they get 
why women should should be in, in leadership positions and be included are not always so open to ensuring that happen. But two years has now turned into to 13. But that was really what what launched it was I, I have I mean, I would not be where I am if it were not for powerful, intelligent women. I, I would love to hear your expansion on that word powerful because you you know you're kind of speaking about people who are disenfranchised when the conversation comes up you know part of your brain goes yeah yeah let the you know powerful people do something but you see them as powerful and I'd love for you to speak to like what are those powers that we kind of overlook a lot of the time a hundred percent first I will say I think there's different spheres of power right and so I'll rewind it to when I was 21 somebody who I really trust told me very frankly, and this was actually in New York, I was walking to a meeting and I was frustrated. I had been in a few meetings where I didn't feel like people were understanding my perspective. They weren't hearing me. I was there to, you know, be there. And he said, you should know, regardless of how educated you are, regardless of what you've done, a lot of people will see what superficially walks in. They're going to see someone who's young, who is a woman, who is Muslim, and who is from the Middle East. That is what they're going to see. And then I started digging into, okay, but what kind of access does that give me? What kind of community does that give me? What kind of credibility does that give me? What kind of experiences has that given me? Because there's power there. We have so often defined power in the way we've been told to define it, in the way it's been socialized, in the way it's very frankly been colonized, that we don't appreciate the inherent power that people from different communities have, that indigenous communities have. So it was even changing the framing in my own mind to appreciate that incredible amount of power. And then there were other pieces to it too. I mean, we can talk about climate change, women's rights, et cetera. And I feel like sometimes we beat around the bush because all of those things come down to power. It is about who has the power to be in those rooms and make those decisions, who is more powerful in terms of voice, in terms of, of decision-making. And, and that was at 21 when I started thinking, okay, medicine has been an excellent educator. Being part of my national movement is an excellent educator. But what I want to do is I want to shift the very norms and the very paradigms. And that means I need to have both traditional power and I can't lose sight of my local and my community credibility and power and what I bring in. That to me was kind of the the sweet spot. Mm. Would you would you almost say then that there's almost like an instant power or like a, uh, an easy to reach kind of power that each person has and can recognize in themselves just by being the person who is who is in the thing that everyone else is trying to solve. I mean, I think it's interesting the way we even, even today, the way we frame kind of making a change in the world is everybody talks about it from a very global level. And I actually think the most powerful change makers I've seen are the ones who do it locally. Anybody listening, if you ask yourself and say, okay, where is it that I have power? Where do I have credibility? Where do I have leverage and influence and resource? And what can I do within those spheres? And then the other part of me wonders, if you keep being called and the UN does it, you're a tomorrow's leader. It makes you feel like, okay, there's not much I can do today. But I never had that. I was in the middle of a war. There was no option but to engage. And, and I had parents who were telling me like, of course you can solve this problem. And I was like, well, of course I can. I am the only one who can. And so <laughs> there, is, there is a naivete, I think, that really helped me take chances that, that shifted the way I operated. And that was, that was important. I think we all had reckless uh, confidence uh, some <laughs> of us didn't end up at the UN at 21 without <laughs> reckless confidence. We just... Uh, <laughs> ended up on the wrong side of a hangover. So well done to you on that. <laughs> what was it that attracted you, a powerful change maker by then, to the United Nations? You know, what, what is it that you were drawn to in the, the promise of the Sustainable Development Goals and the organization that sat behind it? Because it's not an obvious one to jump into. 
for me, it was, I think, really entrenched during the, the Libyan conflict because the United Nations did show up. I started noticing pretty early on that it was kind of a broker of important conversations and it was a convener of the important voices. And so one day at the very kind of early stages of our organization, I went to the hotel where a lot of the prominent international figures always were. And I looked for a table of a lot of people with suits and predominantly men. And I was like, that's the table I need to go and talk to. And I went and I said, hi, it's a pleasure to meet you. And Ian Martin was there. He was at the time the UN representative in Libya. And one of his colleagues, Hans York, who I will always be indebted to, initially got up to almost humor me because I was like, I have an organization. It's not based in the capital. I really need to talk to you about the cool work we're doing. I think he almost sat up in the beginning to be like, okay, let's hear it. What are you doing? So he was really instrumental in helping us set up that the first listening tour and actually getting the UN to come out to Zawiya to speak to women there and, and to bring women to Tripoli to, to speak. And it was just the beginning of that partnership. And I knew if I wanted to t- be taken seriously with my own political counterparts in Libya, then I needed to be taken seriously by the people they wanted to be seen and heard by. This, so this episode, we've been trying to do an episode loosely per goal. And this one is about goal number 17, partnerships for the goals. And I'm just curious to hear you answer... Thinking about all the partnerships that you have been involved in and are now, right, in in your role at the Gates Foundation, where have you seen really fruitful partnerships that, that you think are making a difference? I mean, I think some of the most fruitful partnerships I've seen have actually been the very kind of usual suspects. The most effective advocates and champions and change makers that I see, especially in Africa and in the Middle East, are young people. We kind of casually say the leaders of tomorrow. No, they're actually doing everything today. They are trying to resolve for the goals while at the same time trying to address and resolve for social misconceptions, interpretations, and and historic and traditional norms. And they're coming up against a rising tide of divisiveness, political challenge, religious actor influence. And yet they're still showing up every single day. Those are some of the usual suspects. I think those we need to invest more in. And then the more unlikely but exciting. I mean, we're seeing political figures who normally have not worked together very strongly in the past say, okay, we're actually going to work together. We're going to try to resolve some of these challenges. In Africa, where you have a lot of kind of historical conflicts, you have individuals who in the past have never wanted to sit at the same table, say, wait, we're all in this together. Climate change is going to impact all of us. Pandemics are going to impact all of us, where you see a lot of movement there. But if we look at how quickly those vaccines were approved, dispatched and deployed globally, we saw partnerships not just across country, but even within country, different branches of institutions from military to health to education, Increasingly at the Gates Foundation, one thing we're seeing is more and more of our private sector partners saying, "Okay, how can we actually meet the needs of communities in a way that is sustainable, in a way that is committed in the long term? How can we provide vaccines? I mean, Gavi is an excellent example, the Vaccine Alliance, where you have so many different countries, private sector partners coming together to to deliver the biggest kind of set of immunizations for kids around the world. That is, I think, some of the unlikely coalitions and partnerships that have only ramped up in the past couple of years. I wonder whether the pandemic period was so dramatic and so unheard of that it kind of left the conditions for much more radical partnership than had ever been known. You know, as you say, between countries, between private sector, between competitors, you know, suddenly everyone was like rolling up their sleeves going, shit, this is bad. It's like it is bad for everyone. So I'm very hopeful personally that that is what's going to get us kickstarted again towards the goal. So what do you think when you think, okay, we have, we're halfway through the agenda, we have half the time left to get to the SDGs, to get to 2030, to achieve the goals. Do you think we're going to get there? 
And what is it that's giving you hope when you look at that deadline? So I'm very hopeful. Do I think we're going to get to the sustainable development goals by 2030? If we follow the trajectory we're on now, I think we can get to some. I don't think we'll get to all. That being said, I remain incredibly optimistic because there is a command of leadership and of ownership and accountability in this generation and the generation after mine that is incredibly exciting to see. There is a like, we're not taking shit. We're not buying products from companies that aren't honoring our values. And I think it's exciting. I think we should cultivate it. I think we should support it. I think we should reinforce it because the only way the sustainable development goals actually have sustainable impact is if communities continue to uphold those values. I mean, we were closer to targets two, three years ago than we are today. And then we backslid. And we'll continue to meet targets and then backslide if we're not cultivating the leadership that really needs to maintain this as the social norm. And I think we'll meet a lot more of our metrics and our goals than we think we will. But beyond that, I worry that we kind of talk about 2030 as like an end point. And I actually see it much more as a starting point. Because in order for change to actually be sustainable, you have to build it and then you have to maintain it. That for me is what makes me optimistic because I think we have a, a very vocal generation who will who will hold us accountable. I just want to bring that back. What are the things that we that you've seen that, oh, we're actually just good at this now? Are, are there certain things that you can look at and go, phew, at least there's that? So one thing that my childhood taught me was the messenger is as important as the message. So obviously both my parents had favorites. And if I wanted something from my mom, I would go to one of her favorites and I would say, hey, you do this for me and I'll do this for you. And so they would be the one who would go and ask my mom and I would be much more likely to get a yes answer. And it was excellent. <laughs> so manipulative of that. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, same, same, same exactly. in my family. See, you get same it. in you my get family. It. Um, we're we're <laughs> cultivating young experts in compromise and negotiation, Gail. But, <laughs> but it was a really important lesson because I think what I have seen very much in, in both the global health and in the women's rights communities is it a recognition that we need to widen our messenger base. It can't be the same organizations going and saying the same things. We need to be talking to communities that are impacted in a way that is co-architecting. We need to go and say, okay, what is it you need and what do I need? And that art of compromise, I think, has actually been very interesting to see. And I think one other thing we've been able to do is that partnership piece is really bring more people to the table and not just in terms of different perspective, et cetera, but almost power mapping, like, okay, we're, who, who has influence where and how can we have a unified message? And so those two things together, I think they go hand in hand. You're not gonna get partnerships without compromise. You're not gonna get compromise without partnerships. They, they go hand in hand and we have to be able to do them together. But those are the two areas where I really think we've made advancements. That's so true. I think that's very a very wise observation. And I would add to that, we've just got better at representation from all people everywhere. I think we're getting to some social norms and some campaign norms that will take us further. What we do like to try and do is give our listeners something to take away that they can do to help achieve these goals. And I guess particularly this goal, partnership. What would you say to someone listening to this to do differently tomorrow if they believe in getting these goals achieved? I, I honestly, I go back to my kind of initial call to action. I think we make the most change in our own communities. We make the, the most change in our own families. And most of our challenges are most are actually, you know, most exacerbated and accelerated at a community level. And so I do think the number one thing is to look at your own kind of sphere of power and say, okay, who's missing from the conversation? Who is not in the room when decisions are being made? Or which rooms would I like to be making decisions in? Because that's equally fair. And who holds that power now? Who can I approach? And the second piece of it is, and then who am I bringing into the room with me? Because 
I think there's a huge amount of value in knowing that you have a constituency and that you are amplifying and that you are bringing others in the room. If you're the first, you should never be the only, and that should never be something you celebrate. Because I agree with you. Yes, we're seeing more people at the table, but we're also seeing people build new tables, and that's exciting. And it can be in the smallest sense. It can be in your own classroom, your school, your workplace. It can be wherever it is, but it's where you hold power. And then you you hone that, you cultivate it, you build it. And from there, you can build a movement that gains power and gains credibility and can continue to knock down doors. You said so many brilliant things. We could unpack for a whole second <laughs> series. I also really want to start singing from Hamilton. You want to be in the room where it happened. Or build a room where it happened. Exactly, build a room where it happened. Oh, lad, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Oh, no, I have. Uh, listen back to this with joy in our hearts. And thank you for spending the time. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Worlds can't change unless we fundamentally believe it can. And, and continuing to communicate how and all of the incredible ways it has is, is such a gift. So thank you both for all the work that you do. Ah, thank you. Well, isn't she the best? Yeah, that was a really great conversation. It reminds you that you are the power. I mean, like she, she speaks directly to like <laughs> that, that naysayer attitude of like, I mean, like, the people who are in the problem are probably the ones who will solve it. Don't throw your power to other people. You are the power. I also love her focus on togetherness and her saying that thing about if you're the only one of your soul in a room, you should not be the last. Like, make mm -hmm. sure you also bring other people in. Like, don't don't celebrate being, I'm the only woman at the table. It's like, no, no, bring some more in. She I thought that's such a clever idea. dropped multiple microphones in this conversation. She just brought a whole bag of sound equipment to drop <laughs> onto the floor. smash it on the floor. <laughs> just smash it onto the floor, <laughs> sentence after sentence. And also, you know, she mentions that 2030 is is just the starting point of forever. It's who we are going to be from that point. We don't, you know, drop tools at that point and go, all right, dust it off, let's make up another 17 goals. It's like, no, we need to now practice those 17 goals and that's who we are from that point. So we become partners who are more than just countries, more than just peoples. We're just people of this earth, partners of this earth trying to keep us going forward. That's a really nice way of putting it. I think that kind of optimism of we'll get to a world where this stuff is just normal is, I think, what has infused the goals campaign from the beginning. And it really is down to our next guest, Richard Curtis. He has an optimism and a belief in partnership, a belief in people, really, that is so compelling and I think has infused every piece of communications that has come out around the goals. And it's kind of why it's working. I think, like Alas said it as well, you can't get to a better world until you believe it's possible. And I think what Richard saw his job as is to create that imaginative map that shows you it is possible. So let's get involved to achieve it. I mean, like if anyone's going to know what it takes to make anything come to fruition, it's going to be somebody who's directed a movie. Those things are a mammoth task to put together. It does take an entire team, a squad of people to make something actually happen. Richard Curtis, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for joining us. I am extremely glad to be here. So Richard, this is a podcast all about the global goals and not to point a finger, but this is sort of all your fault. You, I think, were involved in the United Nations when the MDGs were kind of transitioning to become the SDGs. So what was going through your mind when you approached them and said, well, let's do it this time a little bit differently? Well, I think I'd paid quite a lot of attention to the MDGs. And I suppose, you know, I set up my charity, Comet Relief, 1986. 
And then when it came right round to 2005, which was the Make Poverty History and Live Aid campaign, I kind of realized that for the last 20 years, my life had been about fighting for the MDGs because that was so much of the things where the MDGs were focusing were so often the things that we were giving money to. So when it turned out there was going to be a sequel, you know, and there have been some excellent sequels, Aliens 2, <laughs> Cheaper by the Dozen 2. I thought, let's make sure that these ones are as great as possible. And then when they really went into negotiation, I realized they are going to be brilliant. They're going to be comprehensive. But because of the fact they're so wide ranging, some of us better focus on, in a way, the marketing of them. I'm very aware that when we're making my movies, I'm there busy trying to fix every second of a two-hour movie, but there's someone whose job is making right. the trailer and someone whose job is making the poster, and I thought there isn't a team who's focusing on that. There isn't a comms team. There isn't a simplification team. And so I was busy trying to find a group of people who were passionate about these issues, but as it were, didn't want to go granular. They wanted to go glorious. Well, that's a nice way of putting it. I guess I think you've always <laughs> being simplistic and shallow. But I'll, prefer, I'll take that one. Yeah, I mean, when you're going <laughs> grand and glorious, I guess it helps, especially when we're focusing on this episode on the goal 17 to have like partners that are going to help you. I mean, like you gave the film analogy. Was that your thinking in the time? I need partners? Or was it just a realization of the immensity of the, of the ask? Well, that's the hilarity of our name. We were called Project Everyone. Our first year, our motto, very nearly the name of the organization was Tell Everyone. So we actually literally spoke to everyone. So we found this brilliant designer called Jakob Trollback, and he was the one who came up with the graphics for the goals and the simplified names. But then once we had that, we worked with the BBC and with NBC and then tried to get on TV stations everywhere. We did something called Radio Everyone, which was trying to get radios everywhere. We brought on board the mobile phone companies and we tried to get, I think we got a text out to you know, 3 billion or 8 billion people. I mean, literally the job was mm. just kind of announce that these things are here, that they're coming and that they're a brilliant plan. Do you think, Richard, somewhere between that enormous excitability and, and you know, the frustration of working with, with a machine like the UN, has it played out so far the way you thought it would? You know, every single time I do anything in life, you think you're going to climb up the whole staircase and then you get up some stairs and you realize retrospectively that that was an amazing achievement. So, you know, with the regard to the goals, uh, I wish that absolutely everyone knew about them and that all governments integrated the goals into all their policy. But what I think has been great is, one, they have proved to be very fine in other words, they haven't sort of collapsed the really profound observation that justice, development, poverty, and climate all are completely interwoven, is becoming more and more profound, you know, a revelation every single year. And I think that no other plan has emerged. For me, weirdly, the biggest success has been how incredibly useful they've been to businesses. Because I think, you know, governments, they're always having elections and they have to 
gear their policies very much towards sort of domestic priorities at that time. But businesses have longer-term planning, uh, and we found enormous number of businesses who are kind of juxtaposing their behaviors at every level with regard to fairness, cost, climate, gender, all of those things, and actually using the goals. You know, they grip children. In Japan, 90% of people know what the goals are. So I would say, as usual in life, a mixed bag, but I think with huge potential in this second half to really become more and more potent as the deadline thing kicks in. You know, circumstances have gone both, you know, against the goals in a way with COVID and with the Ukraine cost of living crisis, very, very harsh. On the other hand, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the rise of the climate movement, the absolute tragic proof of the pudding because of the really extreme weather experiences that we've had. I think that there are a lot of things which improve the necessity for the goals as well as slightly putting a break on their being achieved. I've only been on this journey with you guys since you introduced me a few years ago. You asked me to you know, jump on and, and, and host an event with you, but... What I've learned just in this podcast is what you mentioned already, which is like the idea of like how integrated all the goals are, but more importantly, how integrated the people in the goals are and people that you might not immediately assume are part of the solution, or at least people who will be driving it. For instance, this season, the idea of introducing indigenous knowledge and indigenous people in different areas. It seems like a die now, but like having had the conversations even deeper and seeing where it goes, that's been really interesting for me just on this short journey. I mean, like you must have seen some, what kind of partnerships have really, you know, surprised you so far. By the way, that's a great phrase. Did you say that seems like a duh? Yes. Yeah, I love that (laughs) phrase. I never knew it was a noun. It is now. Um, No, look, I think that almost one of my biggest sort of shocks in the goals, I mean, I knew it, but I remember when uh, President Obama was speaking about the goals at the UN in 2015, he said, my first thing is that we've got to make these things true in the USA as well as true abroad. The SDG said, you've got to fix everything everywhere all at once. And I think that, you know, you're talking about indigenous experience, I mean, it's meant to work there at that incredibly local level. And what the goals are meant to do is to give people who are fighting local arguments this sort of huge power on their shoulders. So when you go and see your government and say, we would like this to happen in our community, it's crucial. You can also say, and the goals that you signed up to promise that. This is not, it's not like us quirkily and selfishly asking for something idiosyncratic that only has to do with us. This is a universal promise. So I think that it's really important locally. You know, you've got sustainable cities, so that means that every city actually has an oath that it's made and a responsibility. So, you know, that covers huge amounts of the world, enormous amounts, you know, asking for equality, asking for justice, particularly, you know, climate justice where so often the poorest countries and island states that are the ones that are in the most trouble. So I think that's what's so great about them being comprehensive. And really, it's hard. It's really complicated getting everything right all at once, as you say. My husband used to call us Project um, all the time. 
which and, and now he just doesn't bother saying he's not even funny anymore. Yeah. But one of the more complex relationships, I'd say, in this whole piece that we don't often talk about is the UN itself. And I think to most people, the UN is probably quite mysterious. What's been your experience of them as a partner? What, can, what do you love about working with them? I mean, I know that there are always will be problems, mistakes, failings. But I've found that most people instinctively believe that the UN is a necessary and increasingly necessary sort of political and global force. It is something that you can trust to take the widest possible perspective. So I've been very glad that, you know, in terms of saying, will you do me a favor? Will you do this bit of work? As a convener, I think the UN are incredibly uh, useful. I think that they have got better and better during the course of the last seven years at realizing that outward presentation matters as much as inward decision-making. So I think they're a great convener, a great organization, necessarily a hugely complex organization. But, you know, you have to be patient and understanding with your partners, and they've often been patient and understanding with us and vice versa. Yes. And on the other side of the spectrum, I mean, like there's the UN on the one side. How do you then sell the idea of being involved to your business side and the financial world? I mean, like besides it being the the very easy, we look good doing it or we get a tax break. Yeah, I mean, Lisa, this is so interesting. When we did Live 8 in 2005, we couldn't engage businesses at all. They did not think it was their business. They thought we were dangerous card-carrying communists. And uh, there's been an absolute sea change in business and businesses' attitudes. And it's incredibly obvious things, like there are not endless resources in the world. If you don't create new markets, if you allow countries to become rogue states or poor states, then they will never thrive and they'll never become markets themselves. Um, People have seen that there is a consumer revolution you know, where people are thinking, I more and more would like to be involved in things where I actually trust the morals of the company and the behavior of the companies. Well, there's been a employees revolution where people are thinking to themselves, I want to work for a company where actually I believe the company's doing good. There's been a massive lift in the trust of the general public towards businesses. So I think there's been a radical alteration of who has the power And I think people think businesses have the power and I think the businesses realize they have the power. Can I ask you also to answer for us a bit about finance? Because I know you've been working quite a lot in finance recently with your Make My Money Matter campaign. And I think currently with this idea of getting a massive campaign going to finance the global goals, I don't think people understand, myself included really, the role that big banks could play, well, you know, development banks, national budgets, Who does pay for the SDGs, as it were? And what is it that needs to change if we're going to get to them and really achieve them in the next seven years? Well, look, the goals are paid for by almost everything in life. You know, they're paid for out of city budgets. They're paid for out of government budgets. If you want to have clean water, if you want to have clean air, you know, they are part of public policy. But there is a big new question, which is, you know, can the multilateral development banks, these huge institutions, the most famous of which is the World Bank, which is actually our money, 
that's invested into this huge pot that's meant to be making the world safe and meant to be making the world better. And I think the general feeling is that they have been a little bit out of date and a little bit cautious. I mean, what I'm saying is that the World Bank, you know, has been saving our money for a rainy day. It's raining. And there's a great big, you know, what they call the the Bridgetown agenda. And I heard this wonderful woman called Mia Motley talking about it. And she said, you know, if a wealthy country wants to borrow money, then they are lent money you know, for a long period of time at 4%. And if a poor country wants to borrow money, who will definitely need that money more and more urgently and more reliably, they are lent money for three years at 14%. So as it were, these systems were created in order to, as it were, protect wealth. And now we need them to use wealth, to actually take this money and use it to create much more robust economies and a much more resilient global financing structure. And that seems to be an exciting option. It is, again, something where, as it were, the times are changing. And what we as members of the public need to do is nudge, 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 ask, 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 get people to move quickly, because we're in this urgent situation. And the goals are the perfect demonstration of that urgency, because we need to get them done you know, uh, by 2030, and we're halfway through. But I know as a Tottenham Hotspur supporter, <laughs> halfway through the game is perfectly okay. <laughs> you've still got a chance of winning, even if you've done very poorly in the first 45 minutes. Apparently, we've got listeners in 183 countries to this podcast, which I just is amazing. Found out about Palau. We just found out we've got one in Palau. So we've got quite a good global <laughs> spread. We don't know how old they are. But my guessing guess is there's a good spread there too. So what would you advise anyone listening to this to do? Well, I would say, you know, don't be blinded by, as it were, the power of the West. The G7 is really now less important than the G20. Your experience is incredibly valuable. I would say, I mean, this will be very random. I would say any organization you belong to, brand it with the goals. You know, I genuinely would. I think every charity, I think Comic Relief, our charity has done this now. You know, you can take on board the UN, its power, all the companies, all the politicians who believe in the goals, and you can be their partner almost instantly. And, you know, there will be failings, but ally yourself with this great big movement. Definitely, as it were, look at your buying power, your consumer power, your investment power, look at where your money is, look at, you know, who you support, look at who you work for. Um, But also, I would say that a big learning is that I think that if you open the door to people being able to more easily do the right thing, it is astonishing how many people charge through. I mean, I'm an infamous optimist, but, you know, I got a few comedians to say they would commit to doing a bit of fundraising and we've raised $2 billion by doing that. Wow. So, you know, be optimistic. Don't be thrown off course. I mean, I've had lots of reversals, lots of things that haven't worked. You know, every time, that's true of my movies too. (laughs) Don't expect a 100% hit rate. You are more involved in key issues than you think you are. You know, this sense of powerlessness is a, is, is a false impression. 
Well, that's a very nice way to end. That's very on brand. Thank you for that, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us on an idiot's guide. Um, it's been a real pleasure. So wait a second, who is the idiot? I mean, I'm 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 halfway there. But... I think it's obvious at this point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not pointing fingers or anything. Oh, no, so Gail, that's you. Depends who the that's guest you. is. <laughs> yeah. It depends on the guest. It depends it does, on the topic. We, <laughs> we take uh, we take great pride in, in sharing uh, that load. The idiot's mantle. <laughs> see, everything's better when Richard's around. He's just he's just got a really great outlook. You can see why he's an SDG advocate. You can see why he's architected the campaign that um, that we're all following. It just makes you believe it can be done. Well, yeah, you said it, right? Another mic drop moment over there, which was when you do the right thing, it's surprising how many people line up to follow. That was such a great line because it it it, it brings that onus back to you. Just like if you do something, people will be willing to join you. You know, it comes back to you and your power. If you're doing the right thing, those people will come along quite happily. You don't have to drag them into the goals. It's like a thing my dad used to say. He used to get so annoyed. He would say, people are so annoying because they will say we're going to have a meeting at that building over there at noon. And then everybody will look out their window to see who's at the building. And if no one else is there, no one goes to the meeting, even though it's noon already. Instead of, he's like, why don't you be the person? He's like, nah. be the person everyone else sees going to the building and everybody else will come. And that's, that's the thing. It's like, if you see the problem, be the person trying to tackle it. And then chances are the people just waiting like, oh, phew, you know, ha, ha. Thank goodness you someone's made the move. Thank God you're here. Yeah. Let me join you. I've got a shovel, you know, uh, <laughs> whatever it is. Totally. And I think when you combine that attitude with the other thing that Richard always preaches, which is it's all right to not get all the way. You know, his thing about it's okay to think you're going to climb a massive mountain and actually only did, a, you know, so many foothills. But that's fine. You did some foothills. Great. Mm. And I think yeah. that is the way that we are going to move forward together as a world to achieving these goals. And yeah, we won't get to all of them all at the same time, but we are moving together. And who doesn't want to be moving forward? I, th- I think he really got that spirit across. Yeah, let's keep let's keep people moving forward then and uh, sum up this episode so they have their vavavim to get up off their buttocks and join other buttocks that are already up and off. Should we do... Who <laughs> <laughs> swallowed the slightly rude word th- in the British accent, Bill? <laughs> I think I was channeling Mr. Bean there. Uh, uh, oh, we could have done this whole episode as favourite Richard Curtis characters. Maybe oh, that's too brilliant. much of a challenge. Maybe we should just sum up as ourselves, as, as we're the idiots, as, as agreed. Let's just be the idiots that we are and sum up what we've learned today. Okay, yes. let's go. Are you ready for that? I'm ready for that. Let us Three, two, one, let's go. Everyone can be a partner. You have the power. And if you are the first one in there, make sure you're not the only one in there. Bring others with you. Yeah, open that door. If you do the right thing, you'll be surprised how many people line up behind you. Yeah, the goals are going to be solved at community level, not just internationally. Mm -hmm. And believe. Believe is such a big point in a better world. Believe, be a yes and person. Don't be the one in the corner going, (laughs) (laughs) Think where you have power. Businesses are huge sources of possibility through you, the employees. And you who has any money in a bank or a pension, ask yourself, is it doing any good? Mm -hmm. Check that money, get to grips with a single local issue and solve that issue for those around you. That is achieving the global goals. 
Indeed, there is no person too small or insignificant to gain great influence and optimism. And brand any organization you work with with the goals. Brand them with the goals. Brand it, brand it all. Oh, that's time's up. <laughs> but if you want to find out more, go to globalgoals.org and click on goal number 17, Partnerships for the Goals, where you can find loads more ways to get involved. And that's it. it that is us for the season. Uh, no. It's been absolutely brilliant. I didn't think we'd top the first season. But I think we just might have. It's been a ride. It's been a ride. What have your favorite bits been? Oh, my gosh. So many favorite bits. Uh, let's never forget uh, Be More. Be More Brand was for Series 1. That was Series 1. That was Series 1. I'm talking all the... Because it's worth going back to all of them, not just this season. Series 1 were Being More Brand, who was um, farming in the ocean. Then this season was talking to somebody who just, you know, builds diamond planets in their office. Uh, oh my God, yes. Th- we actually talked to a human being doing that. That was quite amazing. And also, men, go listen to our episode about periods. It's not about periods, but look, it's a great episode, period. <laughs> I also really enjoyed the episode on No Poverty, number one, listening to Rory Stewart and Rutger Bregman. I mean, they so clever, so practical, and so optimistic yeah. that we will end extreme poverty in our lifetime. I love that one. I also loved the one about periods and International Women's Day. And I also thought the one on men's mental health was definitely worth a re-listen. Yeah, it really was. With Will Poulter and Alex, that was really great. They've all been great. What are we going to do next? They've all been great. Every time I do one of these things, I'm just like, oh, I didn't know and now I know and things actually seem better. You think that diving into this for things to make you feel worse, it's diving into the bog of problems. But it's really diving into the smorgasbord of solutions and amazing people and positivity and 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 just a way forward, just like shining lights of human beings. I can't wait for us to do something else next or whatever it is. I'm going to go out and just do stuff outside my place now to make my place a better <laughs> you place. You go make your place better. If our listeners can go to wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review, that all will help us come back for the third series. And where we'll share be with your friends. About, yeah, share. Get flex more partners in. Get learned. more partners in. Yeah, flex on, flex on us. More flex on us. <laughs> Coming soon. Gail misusing that phrase. Go until, give us a review. Until then, we we hope you are part of the solution. It's been such a pleasure uh, producing, well, bringing all of this to you guys. That's it for me, Loisa Matinga, the idiot, and me, fellow idiot Gail Galley, saying goodbye. Bye. And that's it for this season of An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World. It was an Audi production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. The producers were Yelene Goffin, Ali Winter-Taylor, Eli Block and Ivor Manley. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. Now listen back to all the wonderful episodes in our archives, because they're still topical and full of tips on how you can change the world. If you like them, then one final plea to tell us so. Just leave a short review. A thank you and we'll see you next time. 